This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Awards Chatter Live with special guest Al Pacino. Only don't tell me you're innocent because it insults my intelligence. It makes me very angry. Attica! 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 You're out of order! You're out of order! The whole trial is out of order! I know it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. You broke my heart. You're in no position to disagree with me, boy. I got a loaded 45 here. You got pimples. You think you're big time? You're gonna fucking die! Big time! You ready? Here come the pain! You charge a guy, always charge a guy with a gun. With a knife, you run away. Run away from a knife. So you charge with a gun, with a knife, you run. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Do you want to play rough? Okay. Say hello to my little friend. Whew. And now, please welcome the host of Awards Chatter, Scott Feinberg. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you all for being here. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 313th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode is our first, and hopefully not our last, ever recorded in front of an audience. In this case, 150 people at the Directors Guild of America Theater in Hollywood. Some are longtime listeners who have reached out to me over the four plus years that we've been doing this podcast to share their enthusiasm about our conversations with Oscar, Emmy, and Tony contenders, where we discuss their lives and careers. I'm talking about people like Tony Muscio and Callum Allen, who are here. These are just listeners who who have been here from early on, reached out. We appreciate that, and all of you. Others are being exposed to the podcast for the first time tonight, and we hope that they'll keep coming back and rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast for free on your podcast app. Also in the room tonight or listening are a number of other people without whom none of this would have been possible. So even though I, as somebody who covers award shows, know that running through a quick list of names is not the most 
entertaining thing, you really do have to thank some people sometimes. And so I'm going to just quickly express my deep gratitude to Matt Bellany, Lynn Siegel, Deanna Brown, Victoria Gold, Lindsay Mabin, Curtis Thompson, Anush Yaminjian, Jasmine Reet, Jen Lasky, Victoria McKillop, Ryan Herley, Tom Seeley, Jason Hodis, everyone from Team Netflix, including Lisa Tabak, everyone from Team Pacino, including Lisa Casteller, and most of all, my partners in crime, the people who record and edit every episode of this podcast, Matt Whitehurst and Josh Farnham. They do a great job, and we thank all of them. And now down to business. My guest today is someone who people will be talking about and watching and studying long after we are all gone. He is one of the most important, influential, and imitated actors of the last half century and beyond. On the big screen, the small screen, and the stage alike, which is why he is an Oscar winner, a two-time Emmy winner, and a two-time Tony winner, leaving him just a Grammy shy of becoming an EGOT. <laughs> Time to record an audiobook, man. Let's do this. <laughs> he was also the recipient of the HFPA Cecil B. DeMille Award in 2001, the AFI Life Achievement Award in 2006, the National Medal of the Arts in 2011, and a Kennedy Center honor in 2016. In other words, his mantelpiece is bigger than most of our houses. So today at 79 and with a body of work behind him that is nothing short of breathtaking, he would be well within his rights to rest on his laurels. But instead, he is still hard at work and as evidenced by his unforgettable portrayal of Jimmy Hoffa in Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, doing some of his best work yet. Tonight, it is my honor and privilege to welcome him as The Hollywood Reporter's first ever guest on a live edition of Awards Chatter. So ladies and gentlemen, to paraphrase Scarface, Say hello to my legendary friend, Al Pacino. <laughs> Al, thank you so much for being here. What did here. I win? <laughs> <laughs> it's great to have you. Thank you for doing this. Good to be here. We always begin on this podcast with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised and what did your parents do for a living? I was born in Manhattan, actually, uh -huh. in a, a hospital, Misericordia Hospital. <laughs> and um, I was a forceps baby, if that means anything to anyone. <laughs> Hard to come out. <laughs> <laughs> but here I am. And you're. And, 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 I, 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 and my mother oh, oh, did odd jobs. I was, uh, my dad was in the army. And then uh, they were separated, divorced when I was just a baby. A couple of things about my dad as a youngster. As I got older, I saw him a couple of times, but he was married five times. Wow. Got me beat a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 I remember seeing him once. He was divorced from my mother. This yeah. is a story that goes with my mother. I was about three. Yeah. Or maybe two, because I called him Dada. I remember yeah, that. Uh, I don't know if you, when you stopped calling your father Dada. <laughs> <laughs> so I might have been three, three. or two. I mean. But I was up in the balcony, the movie, movie house called The Dover in the South Bronx, because yeah. my mother and I had moved with my grandmother and grandfather in the South Bronx, yeah. which I loved. And um, we, we were in the movie house, and my dad came in, my my. I recognized mm -hmm. him, so I must have known him a little bit because mm -hmm. I, I shouted out, Dada. <laughs> and my mother said, shh, shh. Apparently, she didn't want to see him, you know, <laughs> but that was a whole other thing. 
Well, the fact that the fact that you were in a movie house at that young an age kind of leads into the next question. That's a that's a good segment. That's very good. (laughs) You've done this before. We you know a few times. No, it's funny because I I uh, I I did. My mother used to send me to the uh, not send me. She took me to the movies because she worked during the day and at night. She brought me to the movies always as much as she she could, and uh, I I would go home the next day. I was an only child, so mm-hmm. I, I had uh, the whole movie in my head, mm-hmm. so I'd act out all the parts. Well, I, I was reading, you did that with the movie that won the Oscar when you were five, The Lost Weekend. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. A drunk hiding his booze. That was a, something that would have been fun to see a kid doing. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I read that you had uh, some aunts that were hard of hearing. You entertained them. I read about a seagull production that came through the Bronx that was influential but the one that I wonder if you can talk about because this one to me seems maybe the key moment that obviously there was some interest in acting but this was the defining moment who was Blanche Rothstein Blanche Rothstein was my eighth grade drama teacher and uh I I was I, I I was in school and the plays and she uh visited my grandmother we lived in a tentment in the Bronx, and it was like five stories high. And uh, Blanche Rothstein climbed the five <laughs> stories and went in and had coffee in the kitchen. We only had three rooms, and she had coffee with my grandmother. And I didn't, couldn't figure it out. <laughs> but she encouraged my grandmother to encourage me to act, that she saw in me a future in acting. Yeah. I must have been about, uh, I guess, 10. Well, it was, it was like eighth grade, so maybe f- uh, 15 More? or something, a little older. 15? But, but the, a little but, too old for that. Then, no, I think, well, you know? but the thing that she had been impressed by, I had read, was you would do sort of biblical recitations Well, she school, would give right? me the Bible to yeah. read in assembly. Yeah. And I would take it and you know, ham it up every time, <laughs> every chance I get, I will ham it up. <laughs> so I, I hammed it up up there for a while. I did go to the high school of performing arts, which I'm sure you, you've got. Well, there. that was, yeah, that was that result of Blanche Rothstein that your parents said, well, go there? It, 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 yeah. yeah. I th- well, my parents. Or your mother my, and my, grandmother. They, they didn't care. You know how it is. Yeah. They didn't care what I did. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I was telling somebody the other day, you know, because I always tell my kids, you know, how are you? How are you feeling? What's what what happened today? How are they never I was never asked that question (laughs) my entire life. All right. (laughs) I mean, if they came up to me, my mother or my grandfather or someone came up to me, how are you feeling? I would really get scared. (laughs) Something's wrong. Yeah. I did something. I'm going to get it. It it just was not not a thing. But I did, in performing arts, we used to do, uh, we used to act. And Mm -hmm. it was a very interesting school. 14, 15, I wasn't really when I was 14 or 15. I was more, I was closer to 12. Yeah. yeah. You know, and and cognitively. Mm -hmm. So then I did a thing where I was pretending to be uh, home. What do you do in your room at night? Well, since we had three rooms, there was yeah. about seven of us in there, I, I didn't have my own room. Uh-huh. So I pretended to have my own room. And I, and I was reading my autograph book. Mm-hmm. So I was really having a difficult time understanding this method stuff, the Stanislavski stuff, mm-hmm. you know. 
I thought, what is this? They're and, teaching you, know, you that at the high school, the performing arts? I know. I was a, it was a little, wow. you know, I think a little premature, wow. I, I would wow. think. <laughs> but they were. And uh, I don't want to rap them at all because yeah. there's a good school now. Yeah. And, I, you know, it was on 46th between uh, Broadway and 6th Avenue. Mm-hmm. And it, it was really a great place to be. That's where they did the film Fame. Yes. I don't know if you know it. Yeah. Of course. So I remember pretending that I do this at night, which I never did. Right. I, 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 I usually like to go out with my friends on the street and they'd be right. calling up, hey, you coming down? We got some grass. We got some. <laughs> but I'm over there saying here. So I, 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 I'm, reading, I'm reading this thing and I'm thinking, what am I doing? And everything I'm doing, you understand, I'm pretending, making bigger than it should be. Right. Oh, I'm listening to music and I'm doing, you know, I'm doing all kinds of hammy, hammy stuff. And I could see the teacher just shaking her head, going, and some of the kids in the class laughing a little, giggling a little bit. And I'm going through my ham stuff. And I opened the book and I'm reading it. And I started reading it. And all of a sudden, I stopped and I started going back in the book. The teacher got up and started screaming, Stop, stop. You know, I said, what the fuck? <laughs> and I looked at the teacher, and the teacher turned to the class and said, what was he going to do? And they all said, he was going to rip up the page. And I was. Yeah. That was it. I mean, from that point on, I, I couldn't act again. I was always looking in my navel. I thought, I'm going to do this method do about thinking. So, I had, so it threw me off about five, ten years. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, but she had that moment. Yeah. And she was very encouraging after that. Called my mother. Asked my mother to come to the school. My mother was used to going to the school because I was always in trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now I was... Uh, Being praised. Yeah. Yeah. So why then... At 16, let me list a few things that happened around then. You drop out of school, you go and work a whole bunch of odd jobs, right? Yeah. And if what I've heard is correct, even was there, were there times where you were homeless? Yeah. What was that? Oh, about? it was a great life. Yeah. <laughs> I really, I loved it. Uh, yeah. You know, you, you, you retrospect, you look back, it's always great. And, and so I, I remember I was so enamored with the village. With Greenwich yeah. Village in, in New York. At that period, it was the 60s, and everything was happening at that time. And, of course, we never went up to I didn't even know what Broadway was. It was all about what was happening downtown. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a, just, you know, there's all, all these cafe theaters, sort of like Paris in the turn of the century, you know. And so it was full of life, the living theater, the poets, uh, everything. So... I somehow got into those groups, and then I met my dear, you know, beloved friend and mentor, Charlie Lawton. Not he, the one from Mutiny on the Bounty. No, Arizona. not that one, no. <laughs> Although I love him. I yeah. he, was, he also was an acting teacher, Charles Lawton. Yes. Became, but my guy was Charlie Lawton, who yeah. was my, uh, a poet and uh, um, a, a great acting teacher who actually educated me. Part of our group, see, it was his class. Martin Sheen was in our class. 
this was at the living. No, this, this was, was at the Berghoff studio. Herbert Berghoff. And, yeah. and he just sort of took an, a particular interest in you at a time well, when. Well, I took a particular interest in him. him. <laughs> yeah, because he, he, was, he was great. And right. he had a wife and a kid, and it was a little family there. And uh, my mother had passed, passed away at a young age. Within a year, your mother and your grandfather, the yeah, two both. parent figures in your life. Yeah. Yeah, and so he sort of became that. He sort of did, yeah. But but you know, I think a lot of males, or maybe females too. I I don't know, but in the divorced family, seek uh, father image mm -hmm. as they go on in life. And I found that I I did. I had Charlie. Then I got to know Marty Bregman. Yep, we're coming to him. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's great. And uh, Charlie was uh, introduced me to all kinds of things and all the. Literature, and because I was uh, uneducated, still am. <laughs> but I read books. <laughs> well, what's what's interesting to me is that the actor studio, which was at Forty Fourth and Tenth, this was was a legendary place in your mind long before you even wound oh, yeah, up there. You applied first time, I think, in nineteen sixty three, rejected. Four years later, right? You apply again, and that's when you start. And just to set the scene again. You're there starting at the same time, I think, as, as Dustin Hoffman. Is yeah. that your Elia Kazan is teaching there? Yeah, yeah. Elia Kazan, Lee Strasberg, Harold Clerman. Harold Clerman. Ran the place. It was coming out of the group theater. And so now the method, which is what was coming out of there, is suddenly more interesting to you than it was at the high school well, of performing uh, arts? <laughs> actually not. not. I, 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 I just don't I, I just found it to be um, you know, I always believe that eventually, if you work enough, you experience enough, you, you find a way of doing it. Although I believe that in some of it, it's what an actor relates to. Are there any actors here in this? Uh... Yeah. Oh, good. Wow. Hi, brothers and sisters. <laughs> and I believe that when you are... Um, when you're in, in the acting thing, you're finding, you're finding yourself in it. And that's the process. That's the journey. And sometimes to restrict yourself to just doing method stuff, it, it puts a, a kind of a blinder on it. I, I like it opened. But some of it I like because some of it's very personal. And that's what I, all art is, personal. So it's funny because I remember do, we would do animals and yeah, you do animals. And what you do is you study animals and then you become them. Yeah. And uh, I, would, I would do that. And I remember doing a scene with some fellow. I think it was a scene from, um, uh, is, is it a play Mr. Rogers? Maybe. Or is, is, is it Mr. Rogers? <laughs> oh, oh, Mr. Yeah. Roberts. Mr. Roberts. Yeah, yeah, See, yeah, I got yeah. Rogers on my, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, he's yeah. all over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, he's all over yeah, the place. Yeah, I mean, he's billboards right. and stuff. And so everything's Mr. Rogers. Right. Tom Hanks right. is Mr. Exactly. Rogers. Exactly. So I, 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 I like it. But I was in Mr. Roberts. Yeah. And I was the scene, the James Cagney scene. And I was playing the Henry Fonda character. Yeah. And this guy was playing Jim, and he was kind of rough and stuff. And we were having this argument. I, I, I was in performing arts when we did that, not the actor's studio. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going back. That's but the animal thing, yeah, I yeah. remember this. And he um, he was getting angry at, at Mr. Robert, at uh, Henry Fonda. Yeah. And, and this kid was really getting upset. 
And I thought, wow. And then at one point he got so upset that he got up from his desk and he put his both hands down like this, you know, like a, like a boxer dog. That's what he was studying. Really? And he scared the shit out of me. I mean, it was, I mean, I thought, what is that? It was a beast. I thought, this is good. Yeah. This is acting. So what was to you the, the most valuable takeaway of, because it does seem from everything I've ever read or heard that the actor's studio was, uh, a, it remains a place that you're very fond of. You're in, I think you're part of the leadership today. Oh yeah, I love it there. I mean, it's it's a place for actors who don't have anything, right? And you go there and my, my grandmother could audition for the actor's mm -hmm. studio. There was no, there was no, you know, they, everybody could go yep. and just sign up. And if, if you have, usually they call you back at, few times and then Lee sees you. Lee Strasberg would see you. Can you imagine it's free? It's totally free. I mean, where is that? Today? I mean, this is culturally. Uh, yeah. So it's a beacon. And, and, I, and I know I felt very, uh, I made friends, friends there and yeah. got into plays. And, and then, you know, it's, you're sitting there, all of a sudden Marilyn Monroe's sitting mm -hmm. there and all you're, you're seeing Rod Steiger in, in the old days or Paul Newman. Paul Newman used to give classes there. He'd moderate. They mm -hmm. called it moderating. They had three, I'm going to go on about the studio. I don't mean to. That's okay. Usually um, somebody once told me, you know, that's very boring when no. you go on about it. But I, I think it, it isn't really. No. And, and, and I just want to explain that they had three, um, they had the acting unit, right? They had the director's unit. They called them units. Mm -hmm. And they had the playwright's unit. Mm -hmm. So they on different days. The acting unit was always Tuesday mornings at 11 mm -hmm. and Friday mornings at 11. And what would happen sometimes is directors who were at the, uh, at the, at the place, at the actor's studio, would see you in something, a scene from a, and they would say, I'm doing this play. And so it was so integral and it was so active. Mm -hmm. It was, it was a wonderful place to be. And sometimes they'd have special evenings where some of, cause it operates strictly on, uh, you know, on, uh, on, on benefits mm -hmm. and, and stuff. It's, it's, and, and then you'd have a special evening where people would come and just to see what we're doing, mm -hmm. the kind of work we're doing. So I was there a lot. Yeah. I made, made associations and friends there, and there was a group. And then Charlie and I would, uh, and Marty Sheen, who, uh, Marty Sheen and I worked backstage at the Living Theater. Okay. I, I think that's in your notes? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, but we should say that, because that, the actor studio, it's not like you go there and you don't have to earn a living elsewhere. You were doing a lot of other well, yeah. things. Well, well, when you're young and you're alone, you, you don't have eat a little bit. Well, <laughs> well let's say. Occasionally. <laughs> so you're real thin. Right. Well, but one of the other things that you were doing, I believe, was working as a superintendent of an apartment building. Oh, yeah. I heard about that. Right. That happened recently. Did, did you hear about it? No. What are you talking about? No, some know. guy was wrote a book and he was the landlord of that building. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I sort of disturbed him in some way. Because, I, you know, I, I wasn't a very good superintendent. <laughs> and there's a story goes is uh, he said he said I wasn't very good in the in the book. I, I believe I didn't, I didn't read the book. Yeah, I'm not aware of it. No, I, I try. Yeah. What anyone says about me is none of my business. Right. That's what my friend once said. But but he, he, he read this, uh, uh, this. He said this thing about how I wasn't a very good super and that and that I, I did do this. 
which I thought was, but I was doing it as a joke. Yeah. You know, but but I, I had, for some reason, in my, you know, in my poor condition, whatever, I had an eight by 10 glossy shot of me mm-hmm. in a, you know, kind of actor pose. <laughs> and I took it and put it on the door, my apartment door. <laughs> Only I taped it up there with, with band-aids. <laughs> and I put under it, Super. <laughs> and I'd sit around waiting for some, you know, uh, knockout girl to knock on the door. I'd say, oh, hi. Come on in. You know? Well, I guess instead of a knockout, you did, you did get a knock, though, which was Israel Horowitz, right? This oh, is the yeah. beginning. This is a guy that's living in the building. You're the superintendent there. He writes a one-act play, which was The which Indian Wants m- the Bronx. Charlie's wife, yeah. Penny Allen. Yeah was a great actress who was in my Looking for Richard, if you've seen yeah, it, Looking yep, for Richard. Yep. And and uh, it, it, she plays the queen, and she's a great actress, mm-hmm. and she's passed on. And I remember she was so happy that I had a place to stay because I was sleeping on floors. I was sleeping in theaters. I was sleeping wherever I could get a yeah. hard floor yeah. that I could, I needed a pillow on. <laughs> She would wash the floors in the in the in the superintendent in the building. Yeah, and and I never did what I was supposed to do really. And the the landlord, you know, he had this thing, and I I said, you know, I don't know. He didn't like me for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why he ever hired me. Right. Yeah. First, I was inept. Right. I I didn't know how to put anything together. I went. I used to have this this great guy, young uh, uh, guy. He was a super. I don't know if he was a great guy, but he was a guy. And he was older, and he would uh, come and do some of the work for me. So that was really nice of him. And uh, he had a family and uh, a lot of adventures there, Mm -hmm. which I I, I tell you, there's no time for it. But there was a lot of adventures in that building. Me is super. Believe me when I tell you. (laughs) But I guess the— He didn't know about them either. (laughs) In connecting the dots, though, I think the key thing was that you get— from a resident there, writes this one-act play. Yeah. The Indian it was, wants I was the my sort of period. You know, we all have these periods in our life where yeah. you think you're not going to come out of this ever. Right. And I got lucky because I was working. Penny Allen got this guy, Tulio Garzon, mm-hmm. director, who was directing children's theater. Mm-hmm. And I would do a lot of children's right. theater in the village I did. it. That's how I, weekends, we'd I'd make money to eat. Yeah. And also in the cafes, we had theater there all the time. And we do 16 shows a week. And you pass the hat. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how you ate. And so I was uh, in this children's theater, mm-hmm. the Adventures of High Jump. I'll never forget it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I played a prince uh, who was, uh, who was uh, turned into a prince who was a frog. <laughs> and he wanted to be a frog again because his girl was a frog. <laughs> but it was funny, and I would yeah. get a lot of these comedians from the Bosch Belt, and we right. would ad lib in it, so it got to be a hit. And uh, we would do that. And Tulio Garzon directed it, mm-hmm. and he had this play, he gave me the play. And something else I learned because you never know a part that's right for you. you know? So I was. Um, I read this play, and I thought he wanted me for the other part. We're talking about Indian Wants the Bronx. Indian Wants the Bronx. Two young punks. The yeah. other one ends up being John Cazal. Yes. Who, yes. who by John. the way, you even, I think, knew already, right? Well, I loved John Cazal because yeah. I used to work with him at Standard Oil. 
We were messengers there. And we all, we used to, we used to hang in this little room, three or four of us. This is when you're teenagers. I was a teenager, yeah. yeah. And, and then they would, we'd go around with, I don't know what we were doing. I never knew what I was doing. <laughs> I, I just never did. I, I did things right. that, I don't know how they kept me, and they didn't keep me. I usually was fired. I was an usher, too. I right. did a lot of usher work, but mainly messenger, which was my favorite job. And if I wasn't working as an actor, I'd probably be doing it today. Right. And a lot of walking. Right. But um, John Cassell was there with that. Mm -hmm. And then when I went to Provincetown, because Indian Wants the Bronx was going to be done to Provincetown, little cafe, act, act four it was called. Mm -hmm. And uh, we went up there and did Provincetown. But it was a great thing, this play. But I, he wanted me for the other part. And this is the part that sort of, exploded in my life. Well, yeah, you win an Obie. Yeah. And I think it was in the course of doing that show that, that you caught the attention of Marty Bregman. Yeah, I was doing this show at, at a place across the street, forget the theater, of the uh, across the street from the public theater, if you know mm -hmm. where the public mm -hmm. theater is mm -hmm. in downtown. Yep. We were doing the play and it was a hit. Yep. And, and what happened is Faye Dunaway came one night, who I didn't know at all. Mm -hmm. And she was a very big star at the time mm -hmm. with Bonnie and Clyde yeah, right. and everything else. And she saw it. And unbeknownst to me, she obviously went uptown to her agent and to Marty Bregman and said, go down and see this kid. So he came down to see me. That's how it happens. And he obviously became your champion. We should say, produced Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, Scarface, Sea of Love, and Carlito's Way. And we'll have more to talk about about him. But he was great. He's the reason I'm here now. So is Charlie. Yes. You know, that's the reason I'm here. Well, in the case Francis of Coppola, too. Yeah, you don't have to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So before there was The Godfather, there yeah. was The Panic in Neal Park. A year yeah. before you were, again, well, in this case, you're a heroin junkie and a dealer, and it's to connect again. The dots are. It's amazing how things all connect because the director Jerry Schatzberg, I think, was dating Faye Dunaway at the time, right? There was something about that. Is that how? I mean, I guess it was really Marty that brought you to. Yeah, well, Shatz Faye Dunaway came first. Whether yeah. she was dating him or not, I don't know. But right. she saw me first. Before, right. I don't know if she was with Jerry. Maybe right. she was with Jerry Schatzberg. Yeah. But yeah. And so in this case. Again, a junkie, a, a, a dealer, and at a time when I think you said your two closest friends had died because of drugs. Well, quite a few of my closest Maybe friends. Maybe more than two. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so you were Well, the South Bronx, it was rampant. They died, they died at very young ages. They were shooting up at 14. And that's the way it was. But it is that way now, I think. And you sort of, I mean, because obviously- Coppola and people who came to you shortly thereafter for The Godfather, it didn't come out of nowhere. A lot of it came out of the panic in Needle Park, that you you got a great response. Well, well right? really what happened is Francis saw me in my Broadway debut. By the way, the Broadway debut I had was uh, Does a Tiger Wear a Necktie? Yeah. And Does a Tiger Wear a Necktie was playing at the, um, oh, my God. Holy smokes. My Broadway debut, I forgot the name of the theater. <laughs> come on, Al. <laughs> you know why I'm even saying this? Because the Irishman's playing there now. Oh, the... the <laughs> What's the name of the theater the Irishman's playing? Velasco. Velasco, yeah. Oh, thank you. See, dear. this is why we have thank an audience. You, you bet. <laughs> 
But there it is. It's playing at the Velasco, and that's where I was playing 50 years ago. Does a tiger wear a necktie? And and uh, there was Francis in the audience. I didn't know him. He was this young guy, you know. And apparently, he called me, sent me a script, you know, of a love story where I played a college professor who falls in love with the student. <laughs> And it was very surreal, and it didn't, I, you know, it was wonderful, beautiful. He's a really beautiful writer, Francis, you know. He did Patton, among other things, Gatsby. Mm -hmm. And so I, I liked the script, and, of course, he took me to uh, uh, San Francisco, where they, everybody was, all the Spielberg, Roland Zotrope there, yeah, right. and I got to see all of them together. And I thought they were, like, kind of technophiles, you know. <laughs> I thought, who are these people? <laughs> you know, coming from New York and the theater and all, which they came from, believe it or not. And then uh, he got to know me four or five days, and he wanted me to play this professor. And, of course, uh, the studio saw me and said, what? <laughs> <laughs> Who that? <laughs> and Francis said, oh, uh, well, he's the actor I want to play. <laughs> I love that he was so, so naive. And I thought, my God, yes, I'm the actor he wants, yes. <laughs> and they said, what? <laughs> no, no way, no way. And they said, they don't want him and they don't want me and then go away. <laughs> and so I went away and a year later, a year. I didn't know him. I spent a few days with him. Yeah. A year later, I get a call from him. This guy in San Francisco. I didn't know what he was doing because I was far away from the film world, really. Yeah. And then it was Marty Bregman that brought me into that mm -hmm. world. And then uh, he just said, hi, Al. I said, hey, Francis. Wow. No. <laughs> How are you? He said, I'm good. He said, I'm doing The Godfather. <laughs> I thought, there's something happening here. I think he's lost it. I think there's something wrong with him. He has funny sound. He's doing The Godfather. What the hell does that mean? I mean, it's the biggest book out there, and, and everybody wants to be in The Godfather. And he said, oh, yeah, uh, I'm doing it. I'm directing it for Paramount, and I want you to play Michael. <laughs> I don't know why. That makes me laugh. Because I'm thinking about my reaction on the <laughs> In phone. The, the phone just went. I thought, he's lost, he lost it, it for sure. <laughs> I said, yes, Francis, really? But I did do my actor thing, yeah. which is thinking. That's a difficult role. Yeah. I remember that's the first thing I thought of. I like Sonny better if he's going to do it. It's more, you know, dynamic. Right. And that was it. And it was a long... Well, but we should say that nobody but Coppola wanted you... Well, of course. <laughs> I mean, it goes without saying. And we're talking about Robert Evans, who just passed away, was running yeah, Paramount. Yeah, yeah. He was looking for somebody that looked like him, a sort of... Well, I thought I looked a little <laughs> like him. I, I, I've developed into him. Yeah, well, but uh, so, so even once you got the part, it wasn't for a little bit... Can you share what the thing was that made... They were going to fire you after you had started the part. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It was it was it was ingenious by uh, on Francis's part because he sort of knew, and he did call me to the place called the Ginger Man. I'll never forget it on Sixty Fourth and Broadway, the old Ginger Man. I'm sure some of you know that place. <laughs> it's gone. Uh, Pat O'Neill had it. The actor Pat O'Neill. Yeah. It was a place that when I finally made a few bucks, I could have martinis there. You know? yeah. So. 
But there was Francis, and he was sitting with his whole family in there, and I I came in, and he, you know, I'm sure he was going through a lot, you know, because they were on him to let me go. And he was just, I remember him sitting down, and he was cutting a steak. And, and I was said, hi, I'm like, yeah. And I'm standing there, you know. And he said, you know, you're the one I wanted for this part. You know that? I said, yes. He says, yes. I said, so what are we going to do? I said, well, what is there to do? <laughs> what can I say? You know, he said, well, I got some rushes, meaning footage that would have been shot. I want you to go and take a look at it tomorrow and tell me what you think. <laughs> I thought, my God, okay. I really thought, I'm out of this. I don't want to be in this. I, I don't want to do anything. This I is after they've yeah. made you audition three times and oh, all they kinds made, of Everybody auditioned. Yeah. We all auditioned. Right. And, and they kept auditioning with the same scene, some <laughs> exposition scene, right. which nobody could do. Right. And I thought, but, but, you know, and but Francis had to do this. Right. And then finally uh, they, they hired me because of Panic in Needle Park because Jerry Schatzberg, that's a, that's a good film, Panic in Needle mm -hmm. Park. Right? You know, it's really not, he did a great job with Kitty Wynn. And it, they took eight minutes from it and showed it to Paramount. And they said, yes, after they saw it. So that's how I got the part. And that's and so Khan goes to play Sonny. And the guy who was going to play Sonny, Carmen, Carmine Caridi, was oh, out was the door. Sad. That was sad. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was really, he had the part. Right. And, you know, it meant so much to him, too. I remember that. And also Brando was not wanted. By the way, right? Because he was a has Brando at was that not point. wanted. He was, yeah, he was a no no. Yeah, you know, because he. Then I realized, sort of, at the time when we were doing it, actually, the first day, uh, a, a Brando didn't show. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, how about that? The guy doesn't come. I said, what? You know, what balls on this right. guy? <laughs> so I, I thought, all right. So then the second day, right. Brando doesn't come. <laughs> then the third day, Brando doesn't come. Yeah. And then the fourth day, they were eating out of his hand. Yeah. That's uh, it. He had them. He had everybody. Uh, it was great. He was great. He was great to be with, like I got to tell you. To come back for a moment, because yeah. to the thing that where you're hired, they're still not sure they want you. So Panic and Needle Park got you the part. Yeah. The thing that kept you in the part was that the rushes that they showed were of the Salazzo McCluskey. No, here's no? the thing. Okay. No. I saw the rushes yeah. in, in this place, Paramount. Uh, it was this circle, Columbus Circle. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'm looking at the film and looking at myself, naturally, something I never wanted to do. <laughs> I just don't like it, yeah. you know, unless I can do something about it. Right. You know, it's, they show me a finished film. I have some feedback. I'll give you some feedback. But other than that, I'm not... But anyway... I'm looking at it and I thought, well, this seems not so good, but not so bad. I, I'm, <laughs> you know, I, I used to spend days walking from 92nd Street and Broadway to the village and back just thinking about this role mm -hmm. and how I could get there somehow, you know, and thinking about this character. I don't know what, and just going off on other tangents in my mind, whatever, but when I saw the screen up there, honestly, this is true, I thought, this isn't particularly good or bad or anything. It's this 
kind of a schlep of a guy there, you know, kind of a whatever. I said, but it's it's okay because I know where I'm going. Mm-hmm. It's all about the arc. The character's always been to me about getting somewhere. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's where the power, if there's power in the performance, it's gonna come from this guy suddenly appearing and you say, you know, where did he come from? Mm-hmm. You know. But I didn't say that to Francis. I thought that that'd be a little, you know. I'm disagreeing with him. I don't want to, you know, I, but I did say, yeah, I see what you mean. Those are my words. And of course, he's smart. He thought, this guy is, you know, I better I better do the Salazzo scene. So he got the Salazzo, he moved the Salazzo scene, <laughs> for, I didn't know this, from where it was originally scheduled and put it up front so I could do it and Paramount could see it. Just to remind people, if anyone, you know, needs a refresher, this is where Michael goes to the bathroom, comes back, shoots the police chief yeah. and the guys having dinner with, and suddenly he's now, there's no turning back. No, no turning so, back. Sterling Hayden. Yes. And and uh, Al Letiri. Yeah. These guys were such great yeah, 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 yeah. Sterling so, Hayden yeah. and little Al Letiri yeah. were fantastic. They were so good to me, so sweet to me, because I, I was, nobody knew me. And so, so that was the scene, though. That I was the kid. You know. <laughs> so the studio was sold now, and we should say you're 31. The studio well, was Par- sold. Paramount was not going to fire you after that. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't. They s- no, no, no. Sold the studio. <laughs> okay, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went away. I went away for a while. I was right. thinking about That's Sterling right. Hayden. He used to live on a barge. Right, you know, he, right. He was right. so great to me and s- sweet. I mean, so just you're 31 years old. It's only your third film. You're working with Marlon Brando. You've said, "quote." Except for Francis, I felt really unwanted on the set, close quote. And so with that background, that context rather, what did you see as your mission there? What what did you have to do with this character to kind of make him more than just an enigma, which is what you said that was the part of the challenge? Right? Yeah. Well, I, I had Francis and uh, I, I I had the scenes. It was a beautifully written script, you know, and a beautiful movie. Mm-hmm. So, and... And then I had to learn a little Italian, which I didn't. That's a that's a funny story mm-hmm. because I was in the uh, Sicily and we were doing the wedding scene. He said, "Go, uh, I'll go around and just you know, because yeah, I mean he's making movies. Yeah. He, he's, the clock is ticking, and I'm asking him stupid questions. <laughs> but but and he said, just just go over there to the the family group there and speak Italian to them. And I said, uh, I don't." I don't speak Italian, Francis. <laughs> he, he said, well, it, do, it doesn't matter. Just say anything to them. It's okay. I'm over there. I got the camera over there. Don't worry about it. I said, oh, I'm not worried. I just He said, no, no, just go there and do it. So I said, all right. So I go over there, and I'm talking. And then he says, well, now what you do is you get up and you grab the girl that you're going to marry, and you do the waltz just around there and go around in a circle. I said, Francis, I can't waltz. I've never waltzed. You know, he said, you not waltz? What, what do you mean you can't? Well, just go around. All right, take her around and don't go around with her. I said, okay, okay, I'll go do it. So I got the girl who did not like me to start with. Oh, God, she, she just, I don't know, she had her eyes somewhere else, I guess. But I was going around, I was going around the thing. With, with the girl, and I was dizzy and everything, but it didn't matter. He says, then just get in the car and go. <laughs> Francis, I don't drive. 
And I swear to you, I swear, he said, why did I hire you? <laughs> See, that was the kind of relationship we yeah, yeah, yeah. What was the earliest sign? So you have all, you know, there's these little little hiccups along the way. Yeah. But when did you first realize, and this is the, the last thing about Godfather 1 for a moment. Yeah. When did you first realize, wait a minute, I'm part of something really special here? I, I didn't even conceive of it. Uh, honestly, I didn't until I saw it. And I didn't see it. I saw, you know, this is the kind of, you know, I was a kid, so I was, yeah, whatever. And I saw it. And I remember seeing it. I don't know what was on my mind ever. I was, all due respect, you know, half the time I was sort of high. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but not when I played the role. I have yeah. to say that. But afterwards, so I was kind of, my mind was in strange places. But I went and saw it. You would think I would have known what I saw. You know, but I saw it, and I thought, you know, it was good. <laughs> and I thought, but I, I had a lot of notes. Yeah. So I went to Francis. You see, we're similar ages. I mean, right. He's only a year older than me. Mm -hmm. So I, I went to him, and we were like contemporary together in this, you know. And I said, hey, Francis, he said, what's that? I said, it's my notes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I just, these are so vivid to me when I'm thinking about them now, you know. The nerve, you know. I, I thought, but he took it, and of course, he used a few of my notes. I mean, come on. Pretty good. And I, I had no experience with it, but I, I could feel it. And, and I gave him the notes, and then I went to the opening with my grandmother. My grandmother was still alive, and my girlfriend at the time, mm -hmm. Jill Clayburgh, mm -hmm. who was this great girl yep. that I was with. And uh, my grandmother and my aunt, my grandmother's daughter, my mother's sister. And I was in this, this thing was going on. I was so high. And, and, and it was going on, and I was suddenly on television. And I'm on television thinking, you know, yeah, classic. What the fuck is this? And I'm there saying, I don't know what to say about anything. You know, small talk never came easy. So I'm on there talking to somebody about, you know, literally nothing. And so I'm, I'm, I'm saying, huh, ma, huh? And I'm thinking, and I was like, I know what I'm going to do. Yeah. I'm going to go into the movie house, and then I'm going to leave. As soon as the lights go down, Al goes out. <laughs> and that's what I did. I, the lights went down. I swept out of there. I went to a place uh, down on 44th Street. Al Ruddy, who I loved, the mm -hmm. producer. Yep. I loved this guy. He was with me all the way on the film. He was. He was a, this, he's, I, he knows strong, how much yeah. I love this. Yeah. But we, I got so drunk in this place, in the <laughs> bar. We kept drinking. I was so ossified. Then there was a party. So I didn't see the film. <laughs> no. Well, it Is turned it out pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I finally saw it. <laughs> Last week, I, yeah, I had, I had caught a up with it. It was really good. <laughs> so, just keep in mind, I want people to kind of in the back of their head for the next few minutes, keep in mind the years because this. Is one after the other after the other. So 71 was Panic in Needle Park. 72 is Godfather. Now we get to 73, Frank Serpico, police whistleblower in Sidney Lumet's Serpico. You met the, might have been the first real person you played. You yeah. met him. You sort of became him to the extent that you 
thought that you were a, uh, a cop out in the oh, real world. Man, that was so silly. <laughs> <Can> you <share laughs> well, you know, I'm with Frank, and I, I got to say one thing. Yeah. I, I was with him all. I really, yeah. I tailed him. I, I consumed him, you know. Yeah. He's just a in, very interesting fellow. Mm -hmm. We're in the, we used to go, I used to go up to Montauk. Mm -hmm. I had the, I used to rent a house there, and, and we were sitting out on the deck, Frank and I, and I'm looking at him and talking and absorbing, whatever. You, you know, it is all about that, absorbing. And so when you got the real thing, you know, it's uh, with Jimmy Hoffa, it was all what I saw in films and stuff. But with him, he was right there. So I could ask him anything. So I asked him at one point, Frank, why, you know, why did you just say, say, here, you know, uh, take the money, you know, whatever, and give it to charity. They even say it in the film. Just give it to charity. What do you care? What are you knocking yourself? And he looked at me and he said, well, Al, if I did that, who would I be when I listened to Beethoven? I want to play that guy, you yeah, know. Yeah, I yeah. want to play somebody. That's the kind of person he was. You know? And and he was very helpful to me. He was just, you know, he, he just told me things that you get the inside of things. Yeah. You know? Anyway, I was in a car, in a cab. Yes. I used to always jump in cabs. I didn't, I still couldn't drive, remember? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, and I'm over there driving in a cab. And I did not like when trucks blow out that terrible black smoke. Yeah, yeah. It just chokes you, you know? And I never liked it. I just thought it was a disgrace, right? So I, I see this truck doing it. And I'm in the cab and I tell the cabbie, pull over, pull over, go alongside that fucking truck go alongside so he goes along the truck i take out my cervical badge i shine it at him and i say pull over and of course in new york he says oh fuck you i thought oh my god and then i realized this is not a badge yeah. Uh, it was a disappointment i must say i wanted to pull the sucker over and just say hey man Show me your whatever. Yeah, you were. Show me uh, your laundry ticket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so probably maybe even in the midst of doing Serpico around that time, you hear from Francis again, and there's a discussion about doing another Godfather, and you reportedly asked them for a lot of money uh, to the point where it was almost daring them to not do it with you. And Francis, I think, called your bluff. He said, we're going to start this with Michael's funeral if you don't watch it. <laughs> so can you share? Is, is that, that correct? Wasn't, that wasn't the story. Not quite. Please. All right, please. Sorry, it's a good story. So, all right, well. You know. But I think mine's better. Uh, please. Yeah. Please. I go into this little office, and I hear they're doing it. My first Mario Puzo comes to me. Yeah. We go to the ginger man again. Okay. And he says, hey, uh, he's such a great guy. But I got to tell you, because he was, you know, this real intellectual person. And it's such a, he wrote a couple of, you know, Christ in concrete, things that were. You know, the Godfather was his sort of popular book, you know. And he said, you know, oh, oh. he was all new to the movie business too. He's, mm -hmm. They weren't, I wrote this thing, it's... Uh, he says, it's, uh, it's just terrible. He said this to me. I said, really? He said, oh, yeah, it was awful. But, you know, no matter what can I say? Do, do it. You want to do it? I don't know. It's terrible. 
I said, okay, thanks. Thanks, Mario. It's good, good, good to hear. And they want to give me 50 grand for this thing. Right. So I thought, I tried reading it. It was not good. Yeah, I knew it wasn't good. So they said, you know, the only one who can write this is Francis. So what do they do? They actually hire Francis, who has these ideas. He's great, really. He's, he's really got a big brain, a big head. <laughs> With a big brain. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> and, and he's so creative and so imaginative. I love him. And he says to them something in... Uh, I don't know what he said, but Al Ruddy, who I, yeah. you know, I love Al right. Ruddy. I go in his little office. I'll never forget this. And, and you know, this is the biggest picture around. Yep. And I'm sitting there, and he says to me, here, and he goes underneath the desk, and he pulls out this big tin box, puts it on the desk. First, he puts a big bottle of scotch there, you know. <laughs> Just go ahead, Al, have a drink. Right. So I start drinking it, you know, and we're sitting there with the scotch. I'm looking at the scotch. I'm looking at the, <laughs> the box. Right. He says, what if I told you $1 million? <laughs> you know how Al is. $1 million in this tin box. Cash. I said, well, Al, you know, it's that's sort of surreal to me. I, I, I just, I don't know. I, I don't compute that. I, I just don't know what, how to deal with that. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a lot. But I don't know. He says, pushes the tin box across the desk under my nose. And he says, that can be yours. <laughs> oh, God, it's coming back. <laughs> and I just don't know anything. I mean, honestly, I really know anything. And, and money was sort of... Ephemera to me. I, I, it was always that way. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, time has changed. Things have changed, <laughs> of course. Right. But then I was, it was all sort of happening. And then I said, no, he says, well, you're giving, a, how if I gave you $100,000 for this role? <laughs> I said, no, what role? You know, there's no script. He says, well, 200000 I said, please, Al, I don't know what to see. Three, and he goes up, and he goes up. He's up to 600000 <laughs> Now, this is 100 years ago yeah, he's talking yeah. about this, right? <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking at him saying, well, I just don't. And then Francis screamed at them. And he said, he doesn't give a fuck about money. <laughs> Stop it now. Make the deal. <laughs> give him the script. Right. <laughs> so he gave me the script. And I signed to do it. His version. But meanwhile, I would have probably taken a hundred grand. Now I got six hundred grand. <laughs> right? Uh, Off no, to the races. No you know? agent. No anything. No there. agent. No nothing. Wow. Oh, no. So um, now in this this one, you get to act opposite your mentor, Lee Strasberg, who's oh, playing Hyman Roth. Oh, part two. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You. But I actually heard that your favorite moment in part two was when Michael realizes that Fredo betrayed him. Why is that the moment that stood out the most to you? It stood out for me because I remember it clearly. We were in the, this place in uh, Dominican, which was posing it as Cuba time. And it was this freak show. I was back there with my bodyguard as Michael. I was, and I'm standing there and something happened because I heard... 
John Cassell, who's so great mm -hmm. and who was my kind of quasi-mentor. Yeah. He was my, you know, I've learned a lot from him, working with him. He uh, says, Johnny Ola used to take us here, says this one thing, and something happened to me. Something went into me, and it just, bah! And I knew it. That ain't going to happen again. That ain't going to happen again. Just the way you responded. But I had... This is movies. Yeah. I had a little white cigarette paper on my lip. Now they digitize it out, of course. <laughs> but then I said, Francis, she says, we got to do it again. We got to do it. I said, Francis, I can't do that again. And then we had one of those talks. <laughs> Winding up with me doing it again, right? right? Okay. <laughs> but it was in the film. It's in the film. The, the one God. with the cigarette on your... I mean, it, I think they took it away somehow. somehow. I don't know. It's but that one... You... Maybe it's not the take, but it's pretty It's pretty good. It's a good it, one. It yeah, it worked yeah. out. I think it is the take, though. Can you settle for us one of the great debates of film buffs the world over, Godfather or Godfather Part Two, Which is the better film? Well, I will tell you, it's not about being better or worse. You know, when it comes down to it, that's not what it's about. The fact that one is more popular possibly because it's just structurally and constructed as in part entertainment. It entertains while it goes into those areas and it's a family film and Godfather 2 is more intellectual. It's more about, uh, you know, it's, it's, I hate to say that or use the word art film, but it's more, in, the, in a lot of ways, it's more personal for Francis. Mm -hmm. So to me, it, it really is one that's the most uh, enjoyable. Mm -hmm. It's more like a movie. And it turns out that the populace liked one, yes. you know. But it was Godfather 2 was really, really Great good. Great too, yes. So you and Lumet obviously had gotten along well oh, on Serpico. City. And now comes a year after. So again, sorry to do the math. Panic in Needle Park 71, Godfather 72, Serpico 73, Godfather 2 74, and then 75, Dog Day Afternoon with yeah. Lumet again. Sonny, which had also been your nickname as, for a while uh, yeah. as a kid, right? Yeah, yeah. Sonny is this bisexual man who's attempting to rob the bank to pay for his gay lover sex change, which was quite a lot to, yeah. lot to You've follow. You've heard of that. Yes. <laughs> no, I mean, you heard of the film. Of course, of yeah. course, of course. You've said that it was Sidney Lumet on Dog Day. This is a quote. It was Sidney Lumet on Dog Day who made me understand the camera and get comfortable with it. Close quote. Why? I mean, you'd done some good stuff before then. Why well, that? I, I don't think I was accurate there. Okay. I think really what it is is that Sidney Lumet made you feel as though there wasn't a camera there. See, that was the thing about, and that was my adjustment. And I still am adjusting to it mm -hmm. because I guess I come from the stage mm -hmm. and that was always my upbringing. Mm -hmm. And I never sort of, and with Sydney, I never knew where the camera was. Mm -hmm. But he rehearses something that's, you know, it's bygone art form now. We don't mm -hmm. rehearse yeah. anymore. You show up. Right. Costs too much money, right? That's I guess what they say. I right? guess there's, everything is yeah. that way now. But with, with, with Sydney, you rehearse three weeks. And what he does is he stages, like he even says in his book, I, I direct, I direct. Directing is directing. Go here. Go there, go there. He tells you where to go, what to do. So if you're robbing a bank, you walk in by his movements, right? Mm -hmm. 
Well, you're robbing a bank because that's the way you feel. You feel like you're robbing a bank because he, if you do his direction, he puts you there. You're there. So this is what he does. And I love working with him so much because it was, you know, and he was all about, you didn't have to do many takes because that was it. Then the scene, the scene on the phone with the lover, because mm -hmm. it was written differently. It was like dressed as Marilyn Monroe, and he comes and he said, that wasn't what happened. Mm -hmm. So when we had to do what happened, and anybody who, who's in films, th this is an interesting thing to know and to learn, is because we had worked together so long, Chris Sor uh, uh, Sarandon and myself and, and Sidney on the film, and we were able to do this because he became this character, Chris, and I was the guy in, in it. And so we had to write a scene. We didn't have a scene for the phone call. But because we had experienced it so long, we were in touch with the characters. Sidney put a tape recorder down there. And we did three tape improvisations. Each one of them were, uh, what, do you, what do you say when they translate? Trans Transcribe. Transcribe. Yeah. Easy for you to say. Yeah, <laughs> so... <laughs> transcribed three of them and then we uh Sydney put them together and he paper you know he, he did this stuff with them so they sounded like that but because oh. we knew these characters we had lived through them these things came out and there's a 14 minute scene up there yes that he that he uh he put together right there on the spot on the spot Bert Harris who's 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 a great guy he's a he's a unbelievable AD, and he was he was always working with Sydney, and he was so smart, and just a great AD. He used to in the morning when I'd come in, he would just get the bitters, give me you know, get in there, sit there, and he shove this stuff down my throat. <laughs> <laughs> Wake up, slap me around a little bit, you know, because I was just so blurry, you know. Right, right. Where where I went the night before, I'll never know. But there I was, and he'd get me get me awake to to do the movie. And so he says to me, I'm about to go out into the street to talk to the police. And um, this guy, Bert Harris, just leans in on me and he says, say Attica. I said, what? What, what Attica? Just, just say Attica. Say it. Because at the time, a lot of trouble was going on with Attica. They had gone in the to the prison. They, they killed prisoners there. You know, it was a real, it was in the news. Mm -hmm. And... And and so so I I said okay Attica he says yeah go 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 good so I went and I go outside and 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 they're sort of bouncing around like that so I said you know yeah yeah I said how about Attica right that's all I said all of a sudden all the extras that were playing it they started again yeah well yeah Attica and I heard that I said yeah Attica yeah 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 Attica yeah and then we're doing this thing together and we're dancing you know and we we were just going and that's how it came about that's great and it was yeah that's what happens with film yeah. these are the kinds of things that can happen with film if you if you leave it open and Absolutely. it was, uh, it was and it's it was the parallel of just a disproportionate police yeah. response but and, and I remember in Sydney said to me at one point like halfway two thirds through the film came up to me and he said, it's out of our hands, Al. You know that, don't you? This film is out of our hands. It's got its own life. Meaning he really- you Ride that realize, wave. Yeah. I think that one of the stories that I've heard that amazed me the most about how smart you are as an actor is 
has to do with glasses and the scene with the robbery. You guys shot a whole bunch of stuff. And then because you pointed something out to Sydney and Sydney was smart enough to roll with with your idea, you had to go back and shoot it again. But I want I wonder if you can explain why these early scenes of the bank robbery were reshot, why you felt they needed to be reshot. Well, I didn't feel I was there yet. And I didn't know this character. And I didn't get incited yet. I was arguing about so many things with the text and dealing with text and stuff. I forgot about who I was at this point. And so when I was there, I didn't feel it. I could see myself on it because I went to Russia's early on. And I saw myself and I had eyeglasses on. And I said, this guy would never wear eyeglasses because he wants to be caught. He wants to be caught. This is what his day in the sun, as Sidney once said to me, it's his day in the sun. And so I, that little gesture of taking them off, and then I went home. I think I went home with about a good half gallon of wine, white wine. <laughs> and I went all night drinking that white wine by myself, coming up with this character. I walked into the set, and Sidney Lamette called Marty Bregman and said, something's wrong with Al. I think you better come down here. He's become this strange person. <laughs> because he'd been with me three weeks working. I wasn't this. Right. But it all came back. So there it was. Amazing. And that is what I remained. And then when they had to come back and do a reshoot, that wasn't fun. Because I could not get back to that guy. Well, that's what was It's that? as though that guy left my body. He said, good riddance. Whoa. He was gone. You say the, in another interview more recently that nowadays you can slip in and out of a character a lot more easy, easily than you did then. In those days, well, you were so. living the, as yeah, the character. Yeah, yeah. You, but I do it now, but it doesn't take as much out of me because I've learned how to do it, certain things technically only through experience. Because that's right. I believe in that more than anything. I mean, that's all I've, I, if I've learned anything, it's all about doing a thing. Like I did this thing, at, I don't know if you've seen it yet or have heard about it, but I did this thing about when I saw Buddy Rich in a, in a drummer. He yeah, was a great yeah, drummer, yeah, yeah, yeah. Buddy Rich. He was about in his 60s. And I, I knew Sinatra, and Sinatra invited me to, uh, to go to this, uh, his concerts. So I went to this concert. It was Buddy Rich playing. And I thought, oh, I got to see a drummer. Oh, my. Okay. I came to see Frank. <laughs> I got to see this guy. And then this guy goes into a – he did things I've never seen before. It was as though there were 50 drums on the stage, just him. And it was beautiful. And finally, I don't want to go into how I did it. I did it on, I just did it recently. They, they were honoring Scorsese. And I, I did it to talk about him. You know, it's like they showed these uh, montage of, of Marty Scorsese's career. It's beyond belief what you see. I mean, it's, uh, it's a, my jaw dropped at it. Yeah. And I said and when I was up there, this is watching Buddy Rich when he went and did all this stuff, and he started, finally all he did was hit the little bar and the little thing, and pretty soon he hit the sticks, and then he just went, nothing. <laughs> and the entire audience stood up screaming, me too. Yeah. Just saying, whoa, we had just witnessed something. And uh, Sinatra comes on the stage, looks over, and says to the audience, looks at Buddy Rich, says, see, this is what, what happens when you stay at a thing, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's experience is doing it. It's not thinking anymore about anything other than 
what you're doing. And that comes with time. Right. So post-Dog Day, you go back to Broadway, you win a Tony for basic training of Pablo Hummel. Right. Great play. Great play. Great play. Hey, thanks. Yes. David Rabe. Then, One of yes. the great plays yes. ever written. Yeah. It's just they don't do it anymore because it's a cast of about 30. Yeah. So on Broadway, they, they don't, they, it's expensive. Yeah. So they, then uh, Arthur Kirkland, lawyer frustrated by the unfairness of the system in And Justice for All yeah. with Norman Jewison, 1979, yeah. co-written by Barry Levinson, who you've worked yeah, with a lot. Barry. Um, we love Barry. And He's great. I guess at that point, right around that same time, Francis comes back to you and says, hey, I want you to star in Apocalypse Now. How about that? And you I, said And no? I said, you know, I, I, missed the, uh, I missed the army, Francis. Uh, <laughs> and I, I don't plan to go in the army with you. Uh, <laughs> I had a sort of uh, uh, idea about what, what a great film that is. That was great. I mean, it's amazing. I just saw it again recently. And my dear friend Marty Sheen was in it. Yes. Well, it's phenomenal, but I, I just couldn't do it. And then Francis put in the paper, you know, Pacino will do a film if you do it in his living room. <laughs> <laughs> he was sort of right. I, 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 I can think how wonderful that would be. <laughs> so let's just, at this point, digest the fact that five films in a row, five Oscar nominations, and suddenly in the course of that, you're very famous person. It seems to me like a key thing for, I, I've never studied acting, I'm not an actor, no idea, but it would seem to me that part of what makes an actor great is the ability to watch people behave normally and then channel that into their into their own uh, mind and actions. Mm -hmm. when, you're, when people are no longer behaving normally around you, does your job as an actor become a lot harder? That's an interesting thought. I, I never thought of it though. I, I, I don't think that way. I think uh, you're playing a part. I, I don't watch people behave. <laughs> I, I don't, unless they're behaving in a strange fashion. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I usually just look at them and say hi. <laughs> I did once say something that sort of, at that time, right. because, uh, you know, I'm having a little bit of a whatever's going on now. It, some strange stuff is happening with the Irishman now, you know. Yes. And I'm, I'm feeling things, and I'm thinking I, I somehow was, been through this before yes. something about my but I was way back I got you know I was <laughs> being a lot of attention was being paid to me and I don't you know what it was I, and then I realized well I don't remember because it was the 70s yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't remember much of the 70s but was part of that you deliberately self-numbing to avoid being oh, well, no because uh, you've said i mean celebrity is a big thing to get used to well, well yeah well there was always that yeah but then it is a big thing to get used to and i think what happened to me is i found a very it it, it was and i remember lee strasberg saying to me you know darling you simply have to adjust <laughs> and he'd you seen it adjust. with a lot of people and you hear that yeah and you simply do and it but it's not so simple no. And it takes a while. And I, I went through some stuff, but I had therapy five days a week, 25 years. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's <Yeah>. fun. <laughs> <laughs> I recommend it. <laughs> so uh, making our way along here, Tony Montana, Cuban who rises to the top of Miami's ah, cocaine world. 
in Brian De Palma's Scarface. It was written, I believe, by Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone. Yeah. Heard it was going to be directed by Lumet, your, your guy. And then De Palma comes along. But whose idea was it that there should be a sort of operatic version of this 1932 classic, the movie Scarface? Brian De Palma. Okay. He, he really saw that. And he said, this is an opera. And I think maybe it, it would have been a good idea to put that on a logo somewhere. So <laughs> before people saw it, they understood what he was going for. And well, because at the time it took a lot of flack. Today, it's still a, you know, uh, young people, college dorms, hip hop artists, everybody. It's the coolest thing there is still. Yeah. And yet at the time it was sort of dumped on a little bit. Oh, a little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. was, uh, was it fun to do some of that dialogue? It was great. It yeah. was great. It was Oliver Stone, yeah. you know, and it was Brian. Right. And, you know, I mean, he, uh, you know, he, he gets a little tamer in Carlito's way. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> a little tamer. So over the next six years, you worked a lot less. There was a Broadway revival of David Mamet, American Buffalo, and then uh, a film that was not treated particularly kindly, Revolution, in 1985. But between Scarface in 1983 and Sea of Love in 1989, there wasn't a lot going on. And that was not a coincidence, right? I, I sort of didn't... I, I wanted to kind of reflect, in a way, just get away from this uh, thing that had been going on for, what, almost 20 years. And I was young, and I was Diane. I was living with Diane Keaton. Mm -hmm. We were very good. Yeah, she was, she is a great, yep. she's great. Yeah, and I was that. with her for five years. And I, I, a lot of those years, I was, uh, I was, you know, sitting in, you know, hanging around, you know. <laughs> she said, well, are you going to do this forever? No, she didn't say that. But <laughs> she didn't she applied to. it. She yeah. So I, I thought, too, I, I, I just... I just wanted to move away from the, you know, the, the sort of pace of the whole thing. And it was good for me. You enjoyed it? I enjoyed it. I really, but then as as it happens, the money runs out, you know. And, <laughs> and so uh, I thought, but that's good that it ran out because I love doing this stuff. You know, it, this is great. And I, when I came back, I sort of came back, yeah, you oh know, yeah. because I did, um, well, you probably got him down there. Yeah, right? <laughs> well, but I think we should say, that was sort of a gift from Diane, Sea of Love, right? That's right, because Diane knew that I was broke. And, and I was broke, I was broke, to put it mildly. <laughs> and she did something that was stupendous. She went to my lawyer at the time, a great guy, I love this guy, Arthur Klein, he never should have been a lawyer. He just wasn't his, it wasn't his thing, yeah. you know. But he was good at it, but he wasn't his thing. You know, he didn't, I, I used a lot of him as Arthur in the- yeah. um, And Justice for and All. And Justice for All, yeah. yeah. And I really, I really loved him. But he had to tell me, you know, the rug was pulled out from under me. I didn't have any more money. I, uh, somebody had put me in a tax shelter. Who the hell knew? Yeah. I didn't know what anyone did yeah. with my money. I just had my money. Well, Diane did not like that. So she goes, I'm, I'm, I'm talking out of school. I don't mean to talk about Diane, but I, if she's just so great here. So it's so funny yeah, what she did. Right. And I'll share it with you because it says a lot. Mm -hmm. There's Arthur looking at me and she goes in the office with me and she says, well, what, what the hell is going on? He has no money. What's happening? What's going on? 
And she, he says, well, you know, this. She says, this, that. She says, what are you saying? And before you know it, she's got Arthur up against the wall, <laughs> and she's saying, generator, generator. And, and, he's, uh, uh, and he's looking over at me, and I'm just saying, oh. and she says, points her finger at me, across the room, and says, you know who he is? And, and Arthur says, yeah, yeah. She said, no, no, you don't know who he is. <laughs> He's an idiot. <laughs> I'll never forget that as long as I live. And I and I thought she's so right. And I'm thinking they're like, I don't know anything about this stuff that's going on. Somebody putting so I had to learn a little bit. And but at the same time, uh, it was there. And she said, "You're going to work." She says, "You think you're going to work?" I said, "Yeah. Well, I was." Put, puttering around, yes, you know. Yes. I did a thing called the Local Stigmatic, little yes, film yes. I made, uh, a beautiful thing written by Heathcote Williams, a really beautiful little 52-minute piece. I, I like it, uh, uh, but I won't show it anywhere, yeah. you know. A, you got a feel like that. I have a feel like that. I went out and started making my own little things. But she comes up with Sea of Love. She, I got this thing, you know, so-and-so. Somebody might be attached to it. I don't know. So I read it. I thought, it's good. It's, it's Richard Price. I said, wow, I've been out of it for four years now, you know. And um, I, I, I said, okay. She says, now you've got to get it made. I said, well, well I don't know how to do that. So I, <laughs> I called Mr. Bregman. Right. I said, Marty, I got something I think works, but someone's... They're attached to something, but it's, she says, it's you. This part is for you. Uh -huh. So I gave it to Marty, and Marty is what is known as, he was just had it, as a facilitator. Right. He gets it done somehow. And there are people who do, can do that. Yep. I'm not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> but that went over very well. And then a year later, Godfather 3. And the, your character in that one famously says, quote, just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in, close quote. Did you, Al, in any way feel that way about the Godfather franchise? <laughs> well, it, it, it puts some money in the tilly, yeah, right. you know. And, and, and it also is, by the way, just as a, as a bit of a scoop, Maybe I shouldn't say it. Oh, please. We like scoops. <laughs> yeah, but we're not in the room alone. We got this and we got some cameras. So we'll save it for later. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm sorry. This is going to go out to more people than you, dear. You <laughs> but know. Godfather 3, generally, though, you, was it a debate about whether to do it or you were... You were no, not. well, I, I was, you know, I go, I go with the glow and the glow is Francis. Right. And I'm not going to not do it. Right. Francis is uh, put something together and... But there's something I got to say about that one day. But something's happening. All right. We'll see. All right. So um, it's not Godfather 4. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> but you you mean something's happening with you and Francis? No, no, no. No. I'd rather not say that. Okay. It's okay. so silly when you start something, you don't finish it. All right. And all I'm right. very silly right now. So. All right. All good. All but all I did do Glengarry Glen Ross. Well, yes. <laughs> very intense real estate salesman. Again, Mamet who you did before that and after that, who does dialogue so great, like when you verbally disembowel Kevin Spacey in that movie. That's a great moment. But, um, you know, I, I woke up in the middle of the night, yeah, which is my thing to do. I do it a lot. Yeah, We all do, I know. And so I turned on the TV 
And there's Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. And I'm watching it. I thought, wow. And there's Jack Lemmon. Mm -hmm. I mean, he is so great. I tried to do that part, Woods. It, it, nowhere near him. He's so great in that thing. And I didn't realize it. At the time, he didn't even get, uh, I don't think he got much credit for it. He's amazing in it. Yeah. Literally, I, I recommend it. Yeah, and a whole amazing cast. Um, so that's 92, and also in 92 is a movie called Scent of a Woman. Scent where, of a Woman. <laughs> let me just note, you have said that you didn't even want to do the part, but your agent, Rick Nasita threatened you if you didn't. That was part of your eventual Oscar acceptance speech for Scent of a Woman in a year in which you were nominated for both of them, something only one man before you and one man after you has ever experience to have two acting Oscar nominations in one year. I want to ask you to just talk about, some, you know, people like to quote a lot of your movies. I don't know if you're aware. Uh, and, uh, they and, don't do it to me for some uh, reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, maybe with, and starting with Injustice for All or Scarface and maybe peaking with Scent of a Woman, you sometimes, and this is said only admiringly, can go very big. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And you've said, when people have asked you about that, I thought it was the most interesting answer. It's you see yourself as, as a tenor. What, what do you mean by that? Well, sometimes uh, if you can hit the note, you go for it. But if you can't, <laughs> right. it doesn't look good. <laughs> so sometimes you hit it, sometimes you don't. But I tell you, with Scent of a Woman... You're going to ask where I got, right? Well, please, yeah. I got it because this guy was teaching me how to um, assemble and reassemble, disassemble and reassemble a 45 blind. Right. And that ain't, that, I mean, it's just, for me, it's, it's just not easy for anybody to do. But for me, it was like, and he was this colonel and he was a, guy there. And when I would do it right, he'd look at me and say, uh, and thought, you know, where'd you get that? <laughs> yeah, I just rewatched it. It's a, it's a really great performance. Oh, it's Marty Breast yeah. too. Marty yeah. Breast. I wish, I wish he'd work more again. Yes, I yes. love him. He's a, he's great to work for. Yeah. He really truly is great. Made some great films too. Just a, a couple others I'm going to mention as we get to the towards the present here, but I just, I'll mention a cluster. The next few after that, Gangster gets out of prison and vows to go straight in Carlito's way, back with the Palma, uh, 93, 95, LAPD homicide detective in Michael Mann's Heat. Oh, wow. And then Lefty Ruggiero, mafia foot soldier who unwittingly becomes a surrogate father to a undercover FBI agent in Mike Newell's Donnie Brasco, 1997. New York Magazine, I'm just gonna quote, they said with regard to Donnie Brasco, Quote, Pacino's last scene in this movie, and this is me now speaking, when, when you say goodbye to your wife knowing it's the last time you're going to see her, you're about to be killed. Pacino's last scene in this movie is as silently moving as anything he's ever done, close quote. That was a note there. John Milton, lawyer who turns out to be the devil in The Devil's Advocate, 1997, for Taylor Hackford. <laughs> Lowell Bergman, a reporter dealing with a whistleblower in Michael Mann's The Insider, 1999. Yeah, yeah. And that same year... Tony D'Amato, a coach of a once great, now struggling football team in Oliver Stone's Any Given Sunday. Mm -hmm. That that is, I want to ask you about a scene like the the famous 
inspirational speech you give in any given Sunday, which I rewatched 20 years after first seeing it in the original. It's played by coaches, high school, college coaches everywhere to, to rev up their teams to this day. I don't even know if you're a guy who's into sports. I don't think, I don't think so. But where, where does this come from? I don't know why you think I'm not. No, are I, you? I, I thought I'd... <laughs> talk, talk. I mean, of course. Are I, you? Okay. Well, of course. Okay. I played two football coaches. Okay, okay. I, I learned about it. I, I love football. I love it. It's, I watch it all the time. I follow the uh, analysis yes. of it. You know, I'm very, I'm very interested in it because it has these... Uh, as a matter of fact, they're doing a kind of a in, interview thing about it's having an anniversary. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, it's it's really, uh, it's so fascinating, the world of football, yeah. the, uh, NFL, you know, yeah. it, it's National Football League and, and what happens to these young men and what they go through and the coaches and the intrigue and the ins and the outs and the, and the in, intensity of it. It's a lot like show business, yeah. you know. It's really, it's really interesting, and and these and analysts, you know, these people who've played That's the game, right. plus others who know so much, and it's so it fascinates me. But when you have, I think that's about a four minute speech. Yeah, is that daunting to learn? Is it exciting? Is it? How do you go about doing that? And how do you feel about it? Well, I'm just grateful that I was able to learn it back then. Yeah. I don't know about now. Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> different ball game. <laughs> So, more recently, Tortured Cop Who Can't Sleep in Christopher Nolan's first major studio film, Insomnia. Yeah. HBO limited series, Angels in America, playing oh, Roy yeah. Cohn. Great. Three HBO TV films, Jack Kevorkian in Barry Levinson's You Don't Know Jack, Phil Spector in David Mamet's Phil Spector, and Joe Paterno in Levinson, again, Paterno. Can you just talk about maybe, because I guess with Angels in America and then some of these TV movies and stuff, it's over the course of your, of your career the attitudes towards TV have changed remarkably. It used to be where you went on the way down. Yeah. Today, it's the, it's in some ways the place, right? How do you, what do you make of that? Well, when you think of uh, all the cable stuff that's out there and your movies are repeated over and over again, oh. I mean, some of them are repeated. It, it just keeps actors today alive and it, and it also, employs a lot of actors yeah. and some of the stuff the Maisel thing have you seen yeah, that I love Maisel like, yeah. oh my god that girl <laughs> I, I just love her yeah she's, she's great I just did one of those um, yeah for Amazon I you, did one for Amazon you got yeah. uh, the Hunters Co Hunters yeah it's yeah. coming pretty soon yeah very soon so the idea of series that's a series yeah so the idea of you know well, Seriously? it's always the same thing. Yeah. You know, what you're always seeing with them and, and it, you know, pe people at home enjoy that. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the whole thing with Netflix and, and the Irishman, really. Mm -hmm. And so one wonders how that, how that is, that, that adjustment from, especially if you're an actor or mm -hmm. a director, mm -hmm. you know, saying, well, I, I make the film for the, you know. Which size screen? Yeah. Yeah. So, so in the series thing, is, which is really catching on in some... I mean, if you look at the crown, That's I mean, right. this is beautiful stuff. Yeah. This is, and, and the, a lot of the money is put into those films. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, the indie mid-range movies that used to be on a big screen, they're harder, fewer. I've done a few between. of them. Yeah. And what happens is that, you know, and I've done some with some good directors, uh, David Gordon Green, Barry Levinson. Yeah, these are all just the last, last, uh, last five few years. years. Yeah. Levinson, he did The Humbling, David Gordon Green, Manglehorn. 
Dan Fogelman, Danny Collins. Yeah. These are great smaller scale movies. They're small, but you know, it become it's a difficult thing to do because you don't have time to rehearse. Mm -hmm. And then you don't have money to shoot. And uh, and so it, it becomes this uh, so pretty much now when you're thinking of doing something, you're thinking of, well, you know, go to Netflix or go to Amazon or you know, or Apple or Hulu. And and that's what it's become. Yeah. Which is a whole different thing, of course, but natural. It's the natural evolution of it. You know, it's because it's there aren't studios anymore. Right. Not that do those kind of films. Right. But still, there's something about independent films that really is a real value because you just. But usually they fall a little short. And I had, I was in one of the humbling. Yeah. I I really liked the humbling. Yeah, it's, it's great. One of my favorite favorite films, and Barry Levinson was behind it. But uh, playing an, uh, you're playing a, an aging. Yeah, Philip actor. Roth wrote yeah. this book called The Humbling about an actor who's uh, aging and trying in life. It's it's very interesting. I love it. But it it we didn't have the money, and I was doing different things and stuff, and and so. And yet, it's 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 good. I, I I enjoy it. People should track it down. So this brings us to <laughs> an amazing 2019, right? Let's let's first note the first one that came out: Marvin Schwartz, a film producer in Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, wow! First time working. That's with, a great film. It's a great film. First time working with Tarantino. Just anything you care to share about about that? Oh, about about Quentin? Yeah, and and well, here's the thing: uh, uh, Quentin is like amazing, you know. And then he's on this, he's on the set, and he's like, uh, it's like every, it's like he's, you get it with these kind of directors, like yeah. the, the 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 enthusiasm is all there. You can see how much fun he's having making a movie, mm -hmm. and so, but I have a very small kind of role in that thing, but. The thing about Quentin is he has this theater. New Beverly. And he puts only 35, 35 millimeter yeah. films in there. So he said he's showing Scarecrow, movie I did with Gene Hackman many years ago, mm -hmm. Jerry Schatzberg directed. So I said, well, you know, I just don't think I can sit through that. I don't see my movies over again, you know. And, and, and uh, I hadn't seen it in like, I don't know, 40 years. I could talk like that now. <laughs> I haven't seen something in four years. No, 40 years, right? <laughs> but I, it's true. So I, he says, no, 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 see it, Al. I said, well, I only can see. He says, look, I want you to just see the first 10, first 10 minutes. I tell you, I mean, I sat there and to see a photographer, you know, Jerry Schatzberg was a great photographer and director. And, and Milos Forman was the greatest cinematographer. And the location of the first 10 minutes of that film, or eight minutes of that film, where they meet on the road, in 35, I tell you, I recommend it. But where are you going to go see it in a 35? You know, it's, it's, it's to have that experience. I was showing a film of mine to a group of people. I sh was showing it on the, 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 the 35, the sound was off, and, and it was it had a funny kind of sound to it. And we go in and out here and there. So I said, "Well, we better show it on a on a, a blue Blu-ray DVD." So we get the Blu-ray DVD, put it up there, and I said, "I tell you, the thirty-five lives." 
Yes. It just lives. <laughs> and I said, put it up there again. We'll just go with it. It has mm -hmm. a few kinks in it. So what? Yeah. It's alive. Mm -hmm. And that's what, uh, that's what where, I know. You yeah. see it when it's right in front of you. So usually you, you know, you give or take things. Anyway, I'm going on. No, it's, uh, okay, so Jimmy Hoffa, president of the Teamsters, Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. This is your first... First time working with Scorsese. You guys have been, both been in the business like 50 plus years. Why did it take this long? You ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> it I, almost happened once, It right? almost happened once. And I don't know. It, 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 we were going to work on Modigliani together a lot of years ago. Uh -huh. And then it did, just didn't happen. And I know him because I'd see him occasionally here. And I always really was crazy about him because he's so funny and so smart and it's fun to be with them and i i don't know and then uh bob they're doing the irish bob got the whole thing he got you know i hear you paint houses mm -hmm. uh the book and he really saw that that was was something that he wanted to do and they put it and he's the one that said to marty how about al right and, and your there. history with him obviously both in godfather too but no scenes together you were have that one great scene in Heat. You did Righteous Kill, which I know both of you said, I think at that time, it's like, we should do this again, but maybe at a, a yeah. slightly higher level. We might find yeah. something else, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you've known each other through all these years, and I get the sense there's just a regard for each other that there might oh, yeah. not be for anyone else. Well, you know, we, we came up at the same time, and I, I met him in, I think it was around 67, on the street. I was with Mike girlfriend Jill at the time mm -hmm. and we were coming and she knew him from Sarah Lawrence she had mm -hmm. worked with him and there he was and I saw this kid and I thought gee interesting thing he had an interesting thing about him you knew him from his work already or just no met him no he knew me from because I had done right. the Indian already right, so, right. so and then it was odd that our, we both started doing work and sort of paralleled each other as we were coming up and uh, our careers were doing this kind of thing. So there was a, kind of, uh, a sort of uh, connection because we were kind of New York actors going through this thing. All of a sudden, you know, you're in the, in the limelight and you're just, uh, and I think he had a little trouble with it too. And so we would commiserate from time to time, just talk about things. And there was this bond, I think, formed back then. And uh, we kept it throughout. And this oh, movie, yes. it's not like it could have happened much earlier because the key was for to get the go-ahead, I guess, was the D, the reverse aging technology. Yeah, yeah. And Martin Scorsese just did a thing with the DGA where he said, you really adapted to the new technology in a, really well, but also that there's, with, with movement... <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. No, but... The, <laughs> yeah. No, there but, was this computer. It looked like <laughs> it looked like R two D two, whatever that thing is, and it was always there. So I'd say hello to it in the morning. I, you know, and and it was there. So I thought it was like the camera cameraman, the camera this, and so they put dots all over me. I, I don't see as well as I used to, so I didn't see the dots on Bob. You know, so I was fine. And then, uh, yeah. Well, but, your first scene though is reacting. The first one that you shot is reacting to the Kennedy assassination news on TV and yeah there's go ahead you please well it was yeah. I think the way Marty puts it is yeah. I I, I um, 
I have to get up because right. I'm mad at Kennedy's. Right. And he, I get up and stuff like that. And of course, you know, I'm 70 and I'm getting up like, you know, I'm not getting up like I'm 40. You know, it's just, no matter what I do, whatever computers are around, yeah. I'm not going to move on that. You know? So the guy who was always, I used to call him, Annoying Charlie, not to his face, yeah. but because he'd come in and say, "He's the movie hey, coach." You're 39. You know? <laughs> I say, "I'm 39." Yes. How the fuck did I move at 39? <laughs> where Where am I? And so he so, so he comes up and he says uh, to Marty, first day, you know, Marty says to Marty, "He's not moving it like he's you know he's supposed to be 40. He's not moving like he's 40." So Marty said, "Yeah." He said, I "Tell you." You tell him. <laughs> Go ahead, you tell him. So he came over to me and he said, you know, do it. So I just hit him with a left. <laughs> no, I did. I got up there. I thought, yes, that's a good point. But he doesn't know I have a bad lower back. It's a, it's a question of do I, do I have my back and I'm out for six weeks or right. do I look like I'm 40? So I, there was a scene in there where you go up the stairs I run up the stairs or something. It was I, I have trouble with the cold. Unfortunately, I have trouble in New York with the cold. It mm -hmm. gets real cold there sometimes, mm -hmm. and that's my my city. I love it, you know, but I, I I can't go in the winter. But anyway, I was cold. It was cold out, and he said, "Run," and I ran <laughs> up those stairs. It was just a thrill. I don't know what happened to me, but desperation does work. Yes. You know? <laughs> so in our in our last minute, I just want to note you have yeah. a ton of memorable moments and unforgettable lines in the film. Uh, I never waited for anyone who was late more than ten minutes. Yeah. A great one. Uh, we heard uh, during the intro here the the stuff about the charging a knife. Don't run from a gun. Yeah. yeah. Uh, did you have a favorite? Well, I like that one because I, I just switched it around a little. I thought, let's rhyme here, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. With the sun you run, with the sun you got. Something like that. <laughs> but, is there, know, but it rhymes. I mean, you know that the response, as you were referencing a few minutes ago, the response to this performance, you you always get a lot of praise for, for the vast majority of things you've done. This is at a different level from for years, right? How does it feel the, to sort of have it met the way it's been met? Well, it's extraordinary. You know, you feel uh, like uh, it's almost like a dream. And I, and as I said, I remembered, I, I keep thinking I've somehow, somewhere, I've had these things happening to me before. <laughs> I wish I could remember where. Right. It was the 70s. Yeah, right. And so I remember going through that. <laughs> and I think I can handle it a little better now. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. it feels great. And uh, you just, uh, I don't know, it energizes you. Of it's all really the lines, great. of all the lines in your films, and we talk, said there's a lot of quotable ones. What's the one that's most frequently shouted at you by fans? Guess. Say hello to my little friend. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one. Last question. What's left? What's left to still do? What keeps you at it? As we, you know, I said in the intro, if anyone in the world who does your in your profession is entitled to sort of rest on their laurels, it would be you. But oh, you thanks. are still doing nice. it. So well, what? That, well, it's what is the great? I said this once a long time ago in the seventies. I think I said. It, <laughs> I remember reading it. You, you remember the Wallanders, the the tightrope walkers, and they had that huge accident, and uh, they fell, and one of them died. The family, and uh, it, it, and then I once said, and 
And he said, they asked him, why are you going back up on the wire? He said, life is on the wire. The rest is just waiting. (laughs) So for me, life is on the wire. That's great. And the rest is just, although, you know, when you have three kids, that that gets you going. But uh, (laughs) that's cool. But the wire, I I, I think that's why I keep going. Thanks so much. And can't thank you enough for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. Great, great. Great interview. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash scottfeinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.